I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Uh, good evening, I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. Remember when senior projects were seen by one board person? It's a new world. Um, our speaker tonight will not be signing his book, If Mayors Ruled the World, in the lobby afterwards because it's not written yet. And so we actually, this will be a compare and contrast thing. We've had a lot of speakers, they come here, they sign their book, they talk about their book. The book was something usually that was you know, published maybe a year ago and they're still trying to maintain some residual interest in it because after all they finished writing it nine or so months before that and it's all a little bit of an act. This is a real thing. <laughs> this is a guy who's still actually figuring it out. Uh, he's about halfway through his book. Uh, you have question cards and uh, if you ask a sufficiently penetrating question it may well wind up in this wonderful book that we will get a taste of tonight from Benjamin Barber. If you'd like to buy the book, you can pay me in the uh, back of the thing, and I'll send it to you next, next year. I just flew from New York this morning, and I thought I would bring a little East Coast formality. Is there anyone else with a tie in the audience uh, here? I don't think so. <laughs> I, I, oh, someone's good? Okay. D did it on purpose. I thought you deserved a little East Coast formality uh, in San Francisco. It's, it's wonderful to be here at the Long Now uh, Foundation lecture here at Fort Mason, and I, I want to thank Stuart Brand for giving me the opportunity to talk about a book that is in the making uh, now. And I also want to thank Peter Schwartz, who introduced me uh, to uh, Stuart Brand, and uh, who had a wonderful dinner a couple of months ago in his house where we began to talk about these things. And Peter has been an inspiration for me in thinking about this book, helped me make a trip to Singapore. Uh, in which I was able to think about the ways in which Singapore affects this. So it's great that he's here tonight. Thank you so much, Peter. Also, an old friend is here tonight. I just want to mention Charlie Halpern. And I want to mention him because he's the founder, along with a couple of other visionaries, of Demos, the uh, think tank where I spent the last six years uh, in New York and have begun to think, think about this. The book I'm working on uh, is like all my books, everybody writes just one book if they're an author, and my book is called Democracy, Democracy in Switzerland, Democracy That's Strong, Democracy in Confrontation with Jihad and McWorld, uh, and now Democracy in the Age of Interdependence when we're looking for democratic global governance and don't know where to get it. And really, I've been thinking a lot about how in a world where all the challenges we face are interdependent challenges, uh, we can respond with constructive interdependence and not with isolated, insular, sovereign nation states uh, that refuse to cooperate with one another. 
how do we create new constructive institutions that allow us to govern, govern globally and govern uh, democratically. And uh, I had a kind of epiphany because when I first was writing, I was just writing uh, an outline in which I was thinking about uh, the various institutions, civil society, NGOs, citizen movements, uh, states, international organizations, nation-state organizations, and I had a chapter on cities. But as I looked at that chapter, I realized that if we shift our gaze in thinking about global governance from nation-states to cities, there is a rapid and radical shift in perspective where things suddenly become possible that seem impossible. And the book is now called If Mayors Ruled the World why cities can and should govern globally and how they already do. And tonight I'm going to talk a little bit more about that part, really, because the most important part of this is I didn't have an idea. Wouldn't it be great if cities govern globally? Wouldn't it be great if they cooperated across borders? Wouldn't it be great if they networked with one another? Instead, I realized the more I looked at it that they already are networking. They already are governing across borders. They are already addressing the problems that nation states can't and won't. So this is a book about cities and when Stuart brought me to uh, Fort Mason, the old Fort Mason here with this, uh, where Long Now has its headquarters and where this wonderful theater is, I, I, it was wonderful to come out here and look out over San Francisco Bay again, and it brought to mind the epigraph I'm using for the book, and I'm going to read it to you because it, it really fits perfectly as we sit out here on uh, the Fort Mason Pier. It's from Walt Whitman's City of Ships, and just a brief clip from it. City of Ships, City of the World, for all races are here, all the lands of the earth make contributions here, City of Wharves and Stores. City of tall facades of marble and iron, proud and passionate city, meddlesome, mad, extravagant city, spring up, O oh city. That's Walt Whitman, a hundred and, what, thirty years ago, looking at a port city, New York, and thinking about the way in which cities embody the world of which they are a part in the way that states don't. And so that's the perfect starting place for an examination of the role that cities might play. And let me do some introducing of what the themes are here first and then in our discussion with Stuart and with all of you I think we can cover uh, some of the ground that I hope to cover in the book. But Let's start at the beginning in a teeming world of too much difference and too little solidarity with democracy in deep crisis everywhere, with sovereign states unable, unwilling to cooperate across borders. Politicians, citizens, scholars alike have begun to talk and think about cities. If you love cities, you're going to love the 21st century, says Bruce Katz. The city has, in fact, become our in 
disputable human habitat. Urbanity may or may not be our nature, but for better or worse, by chance, by design, it defines how we live. More than half the world's people now live in cities. That just happened last year, the UN announced. Cities are where civilization is forged, where creativity is unleashed, community solidified, and citizenship realized. If we are to be rescued from global anarchy, the city may turn out to be the agent of our salvation. That at least is the argument I want to try to make. The foremost challenge we face today is to establish institutions capable of addressing the multiplying cross-border problems of an interdependent world without surrendering democracy. To save ourselves from both anarchic and monopolistic forms of globalization. And to do that, we need global democratic bodies that actually work. Nation states have made little progress towards this kind of global governance. Too inclined by their nature to rivalry, to mutual exclusion, they seem quintessentially indisposed to cooperation and incapable of establishing global common goods. Moreover, and this is a challenge for us, democracy is locked in the tight embrace of nation states and there seems little chance either for democratizing globalization or for globalizing democracy as long as the flourishing of democracy depends on the survival and flourishing of warring nation states. So what then can we do? The path forward lies before us, obvious but unchartered. Why not let cities, the most networked and interconnected of our political associations, defined above all by collaboration and pragmatism, by creativity and multiculture, let cities do what states cannot. If, as Edward Glazer has written in his new book about cities, the strength that comes from human collaboration is the central truth behind civilization's success and the primary reason why cities exist. Both Glazer's right then. Surely cities can and should govern globally. In a phrase, let mayors rule the world. Now networked cities already encircle the globe in webs of culture, commerce, communication, and they can reasonably be expected to do formally what they are already doing informally, governed through voluntary cooperation and shared consensus. If mayors ruled the world, the three and a half billion people over half the world's population who are urban dwellers and the many more in ex-urban neighborhoods beyond could participate locally and cooperate globally at the same time a miracle of civic glocality that promises pragmatism before politics, innovation instead of ideology, practical solutions in place of sovereignty's posturing. The challenge of democracy in the modern world has been how to join participation, which is local, with power, which is central. Cosmopolitanism responds by imagining citizens rooted in urban neighborhoods where participation 
and community are still possible, reaching across frontiers to confront and contain centralized power. It imagines them joining one another to oversee and regulate anarchic globalization and the illegitimate market forces it unleashes. About 85 years ago, John Dewey embarked on what he called a search for the great community, a community that might tie people together through common activities, powerful symbols, into what he called an expansive public organized around communication. In doing so, Dewey delinked democracy from mere formal government, from the state, and he insisted that it be understood as a deep form of association, embracing the family, the school, industry, and religion. Dewey was certain if it embraced as a life of free and enriching communion, then democracy would come into its own, but only, and this is a quote from Dewey, only when free social inquiry is indissolubly wedded to the art of full and moving communication. Dewey was, in describing the great community, in effect describing the essence of the great modern city just being born when he wrote... A world governed by cities gives democratic form to Dewey's aspirational vision of a great community. It does not require that a new global governing edifice be artificially constructed from the ground up. And it doesn't mean that network cities must be endorsed by the nation states that they will partially supersede. It places the emphasis on bottom-up citizenship, civil society, and on voluntary community across borders rather than top-down prescriptions and executive man and mandates emanating from unitary global rulers, which is what most people think about when you talk about global governance. New York's Mayor Bloomberg may seem hubristic, yet his rhetoric, hardly Dewey's, but rooted in realism, resonates with the power of municipal localism played out in an interdependent world. Here's what he said at MIT uh, just a month or two ago. He said, quote, I have my own army in the NYPD, my own State Department, much to Foggy Bottom's annoyance. But then New York, he said, has every kind of people from every part of the world and every kind of problem. And if Washington doesn't like it, well, Bloomberg allows... I don't listen to Washington very much. It is not boasting, but both the burdens and the possibilities of the city that give Mayor Bloomberg's claims residence. For as he insists, quote, and this is again Bloomberg, the difference between my level of government and other levels of government is that action takes place at the city level. Close quote. While American government right now is, quote, just unable to do anything, the mayors of this country still have to deal with the real world, close quote. I think what Bloomberg is saying is that while presidents pontificate principle, mayors pick up the garbage. This kind of can-do thinking is echoed by organizations like the ICLEI, the Local Governments for Sustainability, whose report following the no-can-do UN climate summit in Durban at the end of 2011 observed, quote, that local government is where the rubber hits the road when it comes to responding to the human impacts of climate change. 
close quote. The city's approach to climate change, in fact, emerged much earlier, first with the U.S. Conference of Mayors Climate Protection Agreement back in 20, uh, 2005, after the Kyoto Protocol had been signed. And then last year again, after Mexico City, where little progress was made by the states, 207 cities at the World Mayors Summit on Climate in Mexico City signed the documents that the states did not, pledging themselves to honor, quote, strategies and actions aimed at reducing greenhouse gas emissions. This is no small thing. Nearly 85% of global emissions of carbon come from cities. So if city mayors around the world take action themselves cooperatively, a great deal can be done, even if the United States and China and India and Canada refuse to take the next steps as nation states. By expanding and diversifying the networks through which they are already cooperating, cities are then proving they can do things together that states can't and won't. I propose, will propose at the end of the book, a parliament of cities. But the idea really isn't so bold. What would a parliament of cities be but the formalization of voluntary global networks already in existence? A global parliament of mayors would not have to enact laws or give orders. It could simply be the place where consensus was reached by mayors and cities interested in taking action voluntarily. The World Congress of the Meta Network that's already there called the United Cities and Local Governments in fact met in 2010 with a Congress with 3,000 delegates from over 100 countries. And one might say that that meeting two years ago was the first meeting of an informal global parliament of cities. And what is a prospective global civil religion but the common civic expression of how people actually live in cities and what enables migrant workers, whether they're taxi drivers or corporate accountants or rock guitarists, to roam from city to city looking for work without ever really leaving town. I thought of that when I was in London two years ago and a Sikh driver who was driving in London, I said, how do you like driving in London? He said, well, it's better than driving in Shanghai, where I was, but it's not as good as New York, where my brother is, and where I'm going next year to drive a cab. He was moving around the world from city to city in the transportation industry without really giving a thought to the differences between cities. Cities obviously come in varieties of every kind, and there's been a lot of discussion recently about how different they can be from one another, but they do nonetheless resemble each other functionally and architecturally. How many ways are there to stuff a million people into a radically delimited space? Even in the 18th century, Jean-Jacques Rousseau observed that all capital cities are just alike. Paris and London seem to me to be the same town. And those of us who travel know, and I've written about this in McWorld, that with the pervasive commercial culture that is everywhere in the world, indeed, capital cities everywhere feel very much the same. The cross-border civil society, then, that I want to envision 
as the future of global cooperation, is simply a global network of the partnerships and associations that already exist and share social values, of the communities organized around the struggle for universal human rights that already exist, of the religious associations with an ecumenical outlook like Focolare, the progressive Catholic institution with interfaith bases in over 80 countries, of the international societies of artists, of the social networks of friends spiraling out to encompass strangers. This kind of network is not waiting to be born. It's born and already half-grown, waiting rather to be recognized, exploited, and formalized. All of the synapses that link urban nodes are already marking new pathways to interdependence. Novel mechanisms of cooperation, common decision-making, are already allowing cities to address in common issues of security, trade, climate change, weapons proliferation, cultural exchange, drugs, transportation, public health, immigration, and technology. I tell a story in the book about Ray Kelly, the new police chief after 9-11 of New York City, who initially under Mayor Giuliani sent 12 of the best cops to, in his intelligence division to Washington to join Homeland Security. And after 18 months, they came home and said, we're doing nothing. FBI doesn't talk to the CIA. CIA doesn't talk to Interpol. Nobody's talking to each other. We're learning nothing in Washington. And Ray Kelly said, okay, you go to Singapore. You go to Hong Kong. You go to Paris, you go to Frankfurt, you go to Rio. He redispatched them to 12 cities. And one reason New York has remained safe until now is that it has one of the best intelligence cooperation networks in the world working not through Interpol, not through Washington, not through Homeland Security, but city to city to city. So there is a real possibility in the informal kinds of association that already exist of a world in which genuine cooperation is possible. It doesn't have to be formal. And as a political scientist, I'm the one who had to, I'm not really saying to you, don't make it formal. I'm saying to myself as a political scientist, we always look for formal institutions. But Ray Colon, a Chicago alderman, said recently after the introduction of a bike share program by Mayor Rahm Emanuel, he said, I first saw how well bike share innovations work on a trip to Seville in Spain. So he came back to Chicago and he worked with Rahm Emanuel and Emanuel subsequently promised 100 miles of green protected bike lanes on major Chicago thoroughfares is currently making good on that promise. Sharing green ideas among cities and cooperating on slowing climate change in city networks like the C40 is, of course, not the same thing as ruling the world. But it does suggest that cities are far ahead of states in confronting the daunting challenges of interdependence through voluntary and informal cooperation, they are doing a lot more than nation states ever have. I was listening to public radio when I was in San Francisco 
a couple of months ago, and I heard an extended program on climate change mitigation efforts looking forward to flooding in the San Francisco Bay Area as a result of ocean rise, and the way in which officials in the city are already anticipating and trying to deal with mitigation efforts in a way that Washington is not, and a Republican Congress, and maybe even a Democratic Congress, never will. Network cities are already supplementing the brave but endangered experiment of the European community in pooling sovereignty, and in time might supplant the corporate and money-tainted machinations of the G9 or the G20 with a parliament of cities that will need ask no state's permission to assemble, to seek consensual solutions to common problems, and to voluntarily comply with common policies of their own choosing. When mayors like Michael Bloomberg of New York institute measures to end smoking or control childhood obesity by curbing 16-ounce and bigger soda sales as he did last week, Washington can only look on and wonder, deprecating or admiring the initiatives but impotent in the face of mayors elsewhere in the world who might choose to do the same. There are more non-smoking cities around the world now, not just non-smoking restaurants, bars, hotels, and places of business, but non-smoking cities than one possibly could have imagined just 10 or 15 years ago. Neither soda nor tobacco companies, omnipotent with national governments through their bullying lobbies and seductive bank accounts, can do very much at the local level other than wine and sulk. The call to let mayors and those who represent they, and those they represent become global governors and enable their residents to reach across frontiers and become citizens without borders does not then reflect utopian aspiration or the longing for an impossible regime of global justice. It demands only that we recognize a world already in the making, one coming into being without systematic planning or the blessing of any state-based authority, that we take advantage of the unique urban potential for cooperation, unhindered by those obdurate forces of sovereignty, nationality, and ideology that have historically hobbled and isolated nation-states inside fortresses labeled independence and autonomy. Now, let's not be naive. It's true, uh, if mayors are to rule the world, it's clear they'll have to pay dues to prime ministers and presidents. Cities may already constitute networks of collaboration that influence the global economy and bypass the rules and regulations of states, and they may, as Saskia Sassen has written, have more in common with one another than the regional centers in their own nation-states. And they may, as Sassen said, cities, global cities, may no longer be, quote, deeply articulated with the hinterland, speaking of the nation states. But that being true, still cities lie within the jurisdiction and the sovereignty of the sovereign hinterland bodies they sometimes manage to bypass or transcend. Mayor Bloomberg may have his own army, but let him try to deploy it in Cuba or Washington, or Albany, or even across the river in Hoboken, or in Yonkers, a few miles up from Manhattan. He can cut potential bike routes through Manhattan, but try doing it on the New York Thruway, or the interstate highway system. 
Governance is about power as well as problems, jurisdiction as well as function. So the relationship of cities to states has to be of critical concern. And there are two crucial questions. Are the interests of cities and of the states to which cities belong in harmony or in conflict? And can cities do what they do in the face of national governments that are not merely indifferent but hostile to their global aspirations? Just ask Washington, D.C., the city, what the courts did about Washington, D.C.'s effort to ban handguns there. And you'll have an example of how cities don't always have their way. The answers, in fact, to both these questions is complex, and one of the things I want to do in the book is try to deal in some detail, probably boringly but necessarily, with issues of legal and political jurisdiction. But what's clear from the outset is that the interests of cities and of the nations to which they belong, and belong is the right word, are often necessarily in tension. And that however networked and interdependent cities may become in terms of their economic, technocratic, and cultural functions, they live under the law and in the shadow of the legal jurisdiction and executive force of what are still very powerful states. And again, following Saskia Sassen, quote, what contributes to growth in the network of global cities may well not contribute to growth in nations. China has found that with Shanghai and Hong Kong and now with Chongqing and other fast-growing cities that the interests of the national elites and the interests of those cities are, in fact, antagonistic. If the growth of global cities is correlated with deficits for national governments, then governments are surely unlikely to sit back and do nothing while their power and their suzerainty is eroded. They'll fight back. They'll try to bring global cities back under their control, demonstrating forcefully that however collaborative and transterritorial cities may regard themselves, they remain the creatures of state power. Now, unlike corporations or associations, states are, by definition, territorial. While cities are not, in this sense, territorial, not locked in a zero-sum game, where the frontier of one nation ends, another nation begins that makes the relationships of nations with regard to their frontier zero-sum. But cities are apart from one another, separated by wide spaces, and their relationships are based on communication, trade, transportation, culture. They are relational and they do not exist in a zero-sum game with one another. And that's a fundamental difference. But still, cities do sit on a state's territory. And as a consequence, are pulled in, drawn into the game, the zero-sum game of frontiers. While citizens can dream across borders, they are defined by and they owe their loyalty neither to the local city alone nor to some emerging global cosmopolis, but to their national flags, patriotic anthems, and defining national missions. For Mayor Bloomberg and his proud New Yorkers, and you can count me among them, this means that we must hearken not just to New York, New York is a wonderful town, and look at the Statue of Liberty as a tourist attraction, but have to hearken also to America the Beautiful, 
and to that larger nation that claims to be a beacon of liberty for which the Statue of Liberty stands. In France, it reminds intellectuals in the fifth arrondissement that la mission civile triste, the civilizing mission of the French, is in fact French and not Parisian. In Germany, it warns that Deutschland über alles is not just a signifier of vanished imperial hauteur, but also of the sovereignty of Germany over Frankfurt and Berlin. Texas may sometimes imagine itself severing the ties that bind it to the United States, and Austin might imagine itself an independent liberal oasis in the Texas desert. But neither Dallas nor Austin are about to declare their, interdependent, their independence from Texas or the United States. The inter interdependence of cities may erode their ties to nation states and draw them towards collaboration with one another, but no state worth its salt, as measured by its sovereignty, will stand still and watch cities annul subsidiarity and escape the gravitational pull of their sovereign mother ships. This is true even in Singapore, a city-state where paradoxically a city must coexist with a territorial coterminous state that exercises sovereignty over itself as a city and a state. Nor is this all negative. This is putting it, because I'm looking at it from the perspective of cities, it's putting it perhaps in a negative light, but obviously cities, nation-states are more than just archaic burdens for cities to bear. National communities are important markers of identity. They help establish the greater communities rooted in common history, common language, a common narrative that allows urban res residents to share citizenship beyond town limits. To suggest a tension between urban identity and national identity is not necessarily to favor one or the other. It's just to state a fact with which global cooperation among cities has to come to terms. The success of cities, in other words, must find a way to supplement the efforts of states and offset sovereign incapacities without pretending nations away they're not going away or making them villains in a story of democratic globalization. They're not villains. The argument I'm offering then also requires that we look at and build upon the successes of lesser known but robust civic entities and networks like the International Union of Local Authorities, like Metropolis, the World Association of the Major Metropolises, like the American League of Cities, like the ICLEI, which is the Local Governments for Sustainability, the C40 cities that are addressed on climate change that Bill Clinton helped establish, the United Cities and Local Governments, the new Hanseatic League that a thousand years after the earlier Hanseatic League has organized cities from nine nations around the North Sea to cooperate and become more democratic. They include parts of the old Soviet Union as well. The European Union Secretariat of Cities, the U.S. Mayor's Climate Protection Agreement, the Association of U.S. Mayors Against Illegal Guns, the mega city foundations, and on and on and on. I will provide in the book a chart of over 200 such global networks with anywhere from 30 to 200 uh, or three or 400, in some cases, thousand member city members that participate and cooperate in a wide variety 
of areas from security and weapons proliferation to climate change, transportation, and health. These clumsily named and seemingly dull bureaucratic constructions are in fact birthing an exciting new cosmopolis whose activities and ambitions hold the secret to fashioning the global processes, the institutions that states have failed to create. Such networks, more than a few created by or contributed to by New York City's hyperactive mayor, help explain Mr. Bloomberg's colorful urban hyperbole. With or without authoritative underwriting, network cities and megacities are likely to determine whether democracy, whether even civilization itself, survives in the coming decades when the primary challenge will remain how to overcome the violent conflict within and between states, and how to address the cataclysmic economic and ecological anarchy and the inequalities and injustices the absence of democratic global governance will occasion. We're already stumbling into that seductive but deadly anarchy in which pandemics and ecological catastrophes are allowed to flourish in sovereignty's name. Not at the expense of my sovereignty are you going to monitor my air quality or inspect my weapons production or regulate my fracking methods or pass a law of the seas which the United States has still not signed. We're already living in an era of global private monopolies and money and influence that are empowered under the banner of liberty, but are anything but free. What is missing is obviously not globalization, but globalization that is public rather than private, democratic rather than hegemonic, egalitarian rather than monopolistic. In struggling against this global anarchy and the brute force, winner-take-all mentality it facilitates, cities working across borders make a difference. By working voluntarily and cooperatively, working bottom-up to pursue sustainability, justice, democratic equality, they can mitigate the, depredation, the depredations of our fractious states. They can temper, they can even regulate the global market states that states have been unwilling or unable to control. Cities that are woven into an informal cosmopolis can become, as the polis once was, new incubators of democracy, this time on a global scale. The tendencies of cities have generally remained anti-ideological and in this practical sense both pragmatic and democratic. From the beginning, under siege from imperial marauders, in an earlier millennium, cities nevertheless had to persist in overseeing the necessities of everyday life. Cities are, after all, habitats for common life. There were people live, and hence where they learn, they love, they work, they sleep, they pray, they play, they grow and eat, and finally they die. Even with armies at the gates or plagues in the streets, city dwellers have had to occupy themselves with the diurnal as well as sometimes with the sublime. Their paramount aims, and thus the aims of the mayors they elect to serve them, are mundane, collecting garbage and collecting art, rather than collecting votes or collecting allies, putting up buildings and running buses rather than putting up flags and running political parties, securing the flow of water rather than the flow of arms, 
fostering education and culture in place of national defense and patriotism, promoting collaboration, not exceptionalism, succoring knowing participation and pride rather than institutionalizing blind patriotism. Cities have little choice. To survive and flourish, they must remain hospitable to pragmatism, to problem solving, to networking, to cooperation. Come hell or high water, war or siege, they have to worry about plowing the streets and providing parking and, yes, always and everywhere, picking up the garbage. Their defining association with trade, with business, transportation, communication, digital technology, and culture generically with creativity and imagination is a natural feature of human proximity and population density. As Richard Florida has written, quote, the real key to unleashing our creativity lies in humanity's greatest invention, the city. Cities are veritable magnetrons for creativity, he writes. Creativity and imagination, we know, drive invention, they drive commerce, they drive culture, but they are also engineers of democracy. Now keep in mind the surging history of urbanization and industrialization we've been talking about and post-industrialization is just really a hundred years or so old. Even a half century ago in 1958, Edward Banfield, the great sociologist of that time, wrote with confidence, quote, most of the people of the world live and die without ever achieving membership in a community larger than the family or a tribe. And outside of Europe and America, the concerting of behavior in political associations and corporate organizations is a rare and recent thing. That's just 50 years ago he wrote that. In the half century since, we've watched cities morphing into megacities of tens of millions intersecting with other cities to comprise today's burgeoning megalopolies and mega-regions in which a rising portion of the Earth's population now dwells. When Banfield published his book, The Moral Basis of a Backward Society, there were over 300 Indian cities that were still villages that are today cities of over a million. China today has 600 new cities, over a million people that 50 years ago when Banfield was writing, did not exist as anything but towns and sometimes not even as that. It's true that tribes still dominate certain cultures, but even in Africa, megacity conurbations have emerged that represent territorially immense urban juggernauts that encompass populations of 20 million or more. Typical, for example, is Africa's Lagos, Ibadan, Continue region where Lagos alone is projected to reach 25 million people by 2025, making it the world's third largest city after Mumbai and Tokyo. In Nigeria that now has six cities over a million and another dozen with 500,000 to a million, all of them growing rapidly. Then there's Kinshasa, Brazzaville, across the Congo River from one another, interconnected cities into different states. Other megacities have appeared in the Indo-Gangetic Plain, in China's Pearl Delta, the Northeast Corridor of the United States, Japan's Tahirio Belt, 
Europe's so-called golden banana sunbelt along the western Mediterranean and the greater Sao Paulo metroplex in Brazil. And of course, China's cities, I've already said, are growing so fast it's nearly impossible to keep up. McKinsey did a study last year that suggested of the top 600 cities with respect to GDP, 136 of those 600 over the next 10 years will be newly added and they will all be Chinese. The concentration of urban populations into ever more complex systems at once both denser and more expansive continues to accelerate, blurring the distinctions between urban and suburban, between town and country. Nor is the compass of these conglomerations exclusively territorial, far from it. Again, in her study of New York, London, and Tokyo, Saskia Sassen argues that as they become service centers for the new global economy, quote, in many regards, these three cities function as one transterritorial marketplace. Not a bad term for many of the world's megacities, transterritorial marketplaces. She goes on, they serve not just one by one, but they function as a triad representing a new form of metropolis that is neither territorial nor virtual, but a network comprised by the intersecting and overlapping global city functions they serve, close quote. And it gets even weirder. There are these new hybrids, new corporate instant cities like New Sangdo City in South Korea planned to open up in 2015 to start with a population of 250,000 people. And then there are the opposite, the unplanned refugee camps in, quote, cities like Dadaab in Kenya, which has up to 300,000 people, refugees jammed into an urban infrastructure that's served by mobile courts, traveling council services from the UN and other agencies, and sometimes youth education centers. And as the notion of the urban develops in the new millennium, people talk about new imagined sea worlds to be set adrift in the ocean, one of which has already been legally founded as Seastead and is to be launched within the decade in the Pacific Ocean off California. And then some have proposed sky worlds, this isn't science fiction, this isn't Hollywood. Untethered from the land, conceived as future sanctuaries, urban colonies for people for whom the planet's continents have grown too small. That such daydreams are more than just fantasy is evident from the plans of futurist entrepreneurs like Richard Branson, who hope to service such colonies with novel companies like his Virgin Galactic, which is reportedly preparing now to offer space mile benefits to its customers. Even old line politicians like Newt Gingrich have been talking about colonizing the moon as staples of their campaign patter. For some time, idealists and dreamers have looked even further here on the West Coast. I think you know that well. Beyond our known urban behemoths and linked megacities, there are dreamers who are in search of McLuhan's global village a moat in his prescient eye 60 years ago, but today an abstraction being given form not only in digital and virtual forms like the cloud, but in global economic markets and the complex urban networks that accompany them. The urban philosopher Konstantinos Dioxides, pursuing his own science of human development he calls ekistics, 
has predicted the emergence of a single planetary city, Ecumenopolis. He gives a sociological and futurist spin to science fiction writers like Isaac Asimov and William Gibson, who for decades have been imagining global urban agglomerations at a planetary scale. And just beyond the global village, pushing out from the imagined Ecumenopolis, one can catch a glimpse of Gaia, that mythic organic entity that in the hypothesis posited by James Lovelock is an evolving and self-regulating system in which biosphere, atmosphere, hydrosphere, and pedosphere all work together on behalf of a sustainable and integral planet. Though whether it's urban or not remains a puzzle. In Gaia, Lovelock hypothesizes we may find ourselves and all other living beings to be parts and partners of a vast being who in her entirety has the power to maintain our planet as a fit habitat for life. Well, clearly, we've moved well beyond the world of fracking and the XL pipeline in these visions. But there's a reality to it. The U.S. government has actually put up grants for people thinking about interplanetary and interstellar tribal uh, visions of the future actually being funded by the U.S. government. The journey then from polis to megalopolis, from parochial pieces to imagined whole, has been a journey all along from the simple to the complex, the rural to the urban, the local to the global, the mundane to the imaginative, and the fantastic. The development has had a feel of ineluctability about it, with populations ever more concentrated, commerce more global, complexity continually augmented. Inevitable or not, and whether we like it or not, and many don't like it, the development has witnessed the forging of civic, cultural, and commercial networks that have made human association in the form of urbanity the touchstone for a sustainable human civilization. What this then suggests to me is a world in which cities already are playing a role in global governance and a role that, if it is expanded, can increasingly solve problems that states cannot solve. States will not govern globally, that is clear. Cities can and are. Not by writing a global charter of cities like the Charter of the United Nations, not by promulgating a new declaration of human rights. We've got that. We understand rights. What we lack is the global democratic mechanisms by which they can be enacted and enforced. Without civic foundations to give mechanisms of, of enforcement weight, rights are, as Madison once said of the Bill of Rights of the United States Constitution, parchment barriers, offering little protection against abuse. What we require are ways to act informally and piecemeal across borders that give substance and sustenance to declarations of human rights. To take a poignant example, if terrorists manage to detonate a nuclear device, it may be the great Satan United States that they aim at, but it will be cities like San Francisco and New York that will suffer the carnage. Cities cannot wait for states to figure out the meaning of interdependence. As David Wiley has observed, 
quote, to redress the disconnect, cities and towns will themselves have to begin to elect representatives to make common cause with other threatened urban populations. That then is the challenge. We come full circle. Can cities save the world? That may be too daunting a challenge, but it seems possible that they can rescue democracy from sovereignty and find ways to help us govern our world democratically and bottom-up, if only informally. It won't be easy, but I do believe not only that it is doable, but as I speak this evening, it is being done. Thank you. Thanks. Let's go sit. This is a good sign. Nice fat wad of questions. I've got one uh, starting in, which is um, Mayor Bloomberg is mayor of New York as much as he wants, but he's not mayor of the New York metropolitan area, never mind of the megapolitan area that reaches from Boston to Raleigh. Um, how does that play out? One of the most difficult questions we face in thinking about whether cities can actually govern is where their territorial boundaries are. So cities have boundaries. They, uh -huh. they, ha they do have boundaries, they don't, but they do not have boundaries that are contiguous with the boundaries of other cities. Uh -huh. And that's the good news. The bad news is it's uncertain where their boundaries are, partly because boundaries are tenuous. It's hard to tell. Uh, so the tri-state region of Newark, New York, and Westchester, and Connecticut, Southern Connecticut, uh -huh. are clearly in a single metropolitan region, but the mayor is not the mayor. In Brussels, there are 12 mayors. There are 12 districts. There's no mayor of Brussels. There are 12 mayors of 12 districts. So, so is this a nightmare or is this the solution? It's a nightmarish solution, <laughs> but it's much less a nightmare because what you're talking about here is technical, political, and administrative questions, uh -huh. not the lack of will and the lack of capacity to govern across borders. And with nation states, which have the perfect setups, we know every country has a head, whether it's a tyrant, a king, uh -huh. a prime minister, or a president. They can gather together, but never will. Mayors will gather with much less authority, with much less sense of who exactly it is they represent, but they can and will gather, and they are acting together without those questions being clarified. And the strength, I think, of the system that I'm thinking about and that's already happening is that because it's informal, because it's voluntary, because it doesn't require jurisdictional capacity, it means that an awful lot can be done in the face of uncertainty over that kind of a question. Question from Stephen Johnson. Uh, he says, 30, 40 years ago, many thought cities were on a path of terminal decay and decline. Manhattan was in a pit. Everybody expected to basically die. Uh, now cities are a path to salvation. What were the main forces that drove that change? Well, in my second hour, I'm going to uh, <laughs> answer that question because that, of course, is a story about the history of cities. But the simple answer is cities are shaped by economics and the economics of agriculture and trade fostered and shaped the early 
medieval and early modern city. The politics and economics of capitalism shaped the 18th and century and 19th century industrial city. The automobile shaped the 20th century city. And technology, the information and service economies are shaping the 21st cities. And what we're seeing is not so Did much cities. the internet cities. make that change that Stephen Johnson is talking well, about? Well, in part, but what, what, what I want to say is that this, the, the question I think referred to, and what's happening is that some the Rust Belt cities are in bad shape, but new information no center cities are in very good shape, mm -hmm. and they emerge just as old trading cities didn't do very well when new industrial cities were manufacturing was undertaken, uh, started working. So we're seeing the passing of the baton from one set of cities to another, not the eclipse of the city. There, there's a hipness shift that I think partly uh, Stephen Johnson is referring to, that you know, cities environmentalists, my crowd, uh, looked down our noses from a great height at cities and thought everybody should go to the countryside, and we went out and started communes to prove that that was the better way to go. And, uh, you know, that didn't work out so well. So is this, you know, this may be just fashion we're talking about, and uh, you and I are riding a nice little wave of fashion, and in 10 years' time, everybody say, remember when we thought cities were the solution? Well, those folks are going to have to do something about demographics because 50 or 75 years ago, about a third of the world's population lived in cities and only about half of developed countries lived in cities. Today, 75 to 80 percent of people in the developed world live in cities and half of the people in the less developed, the developing world do so. People, cities are growing. We will, like it or not, I said in talking this evening. A lot of people don't necessarily like what this is, and I have a chapter about you know, the idol of the fantasy of the countryside, mm. uh, of nature, of uh, the, the wild parks and so on. That's there, but the city is our destiny. We will live there. We may not like it. Cities will differ from one and another, but the majority of the world's population will live there by 2050. It's estimated that 85% of the world's population and 95% of the Western population will be living in cities over 50,000. Now, again, 50,000 is very different than 5 million, which is very different than 20 million. So people say, well, 50,000 isn't really a city, but it's, it's more of a city than the towns of the 18th and 19th century so, were. So here's a question from Jonathan Poole. Do you advocate disenfranchising the billions of those who dwell in villages and small towns and dis dispersed farms and the horrible rural despite the fact red that that state population? Despite, despite the fact that would take out the Tea Party, I do not uh, recommend that. No, they're one of the most difficult issues that, again, uh, I'm looking at in the book is the issue of representation. How can cities represent a world in which right now half of the world's population isn't in cities. And even, let's say, in 50 years, only 15 or 20 percent aren't in cities. What about them? Mm -hmm. So that is a fundamental question. But again, the difference is that with informal governance, cities are not claiming to govern on behalf of others. Bloomberg is not saying that people in rural high schools can't buy 16-ounce or 20-ounce sodas. They just can't do it in New York. And what we're talking about here is 
cooperative cities. We're not a talking huge about black rules. market developing from New Jersey. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you're. I'm sure you're right in that. But you see what I'm. What I'm saying again is that when you're looking at informal and voluntary governance, there's no reason why towns and villages and people living in rural areas can't say, "Oh, we like that. We want to do that too." No one's making them do it. No one's making cities do it. No one's making them do it. So when you're looking at bottom-up forms of organization. It's very different than when you're looking at top-down, mandated executive fiats, which order everybody in a region to do the same thing. Kevin Kelly has a question. If the benefits of cities continue to grow in the future, shouldn't we expect more breakaway city-states like Singapore? Uh, would they have any right to secede? They... <laughs> have every right and absolutely no capacity or power to do so. So okay, no army or what? Because they, yeah, they, I mean, how do you do it? The New York police force isn't going to take on the U.S. Marines. Uh, Norman Mailer suggested that Manhattan actually, back in 1974, become a country uh, of its own. And actually a lot of Americans think that's a good idea too, I think. But uh, well, the, the history that's not going to happen. Uh, uh, Hmm. But what we're, what we're looking at is more integration, not more disintegration. We're not looking at things pulled apart. We're looking at cities working together, and the degree to which they are part of or autonomous within states is less important than what they are doing together. And we're sort of focusing right now in these questions on the cities themselves, whereas the focus of my thinking is on what cities can do together and how they work together. It raises all these important questions about borders and the greater re regions and representation. Those questions have to be dealt with. But what's interesting is that cities are already doing this. And that's the thing that I you know, have found so impressive. So I started maybe, out saying I wish they would do this and now I found out they are. So maybe you could say cities already are city-states to a certain extent. And, and you know, we've seen it historically, the cities we remember and care about, Athens, after all, sort of invented democracy, and uh, Venice was a city-state basically for 800 years of uh, very turbulent European history. Uh, Singapore is a phenomenal event. I'm, I'm curious, when you, you went to Singapore recently, um, they listened carefully to you, I'm sure, what did you discover uh, when you were there that both spoke to your thesis and challenged it? Well, the most interesting, and I'll come to that in a minute because it's a sideline, but very important. What, what, in terms of my thesis, what I found is that even within Singapore, the tensions between the city and the state, even though they're coterminous, are very real. What Singapore does as a state and what the president and the prime minister of Singapore are, in effect, warranted to do is very different than the kind of urban issues that are faced by uh, mayors. At the same time, all the problems they face are problems of, of mayors. So they have, they have a certain amount of confusion uh, on, on those issues. They're crushed. They, for example, they deal to the, Malaysia to the north and Indonesia to the south, and they deal with them as states. Uh -huh. sure but on the other hand, they are a city not a state, and therefore their dealings with them are peculiar and not normal. What, by the way, they have done that's very important for us, though, because one of the other questions which should, I hope, come up here is the question of inequality and justice, which in cities... Well, what about is inequality and justice? Well, <laughs> the answer is cities are no better than states. You know, at, at this, they're doing it very badly, but there are cities that have figured it out, and one city that has is Singapore, because what Singapore mm -hmm. has done in its public housing program, 
which is a little like what Hong Kong and a few other cities have done, is not subsidize rentals, but subsidize the purchase of housing from private market developers. So they have a public-private scheme that allows people to be subsidized to buy their apartments and then keep what they make from them, resell them, move move around at will. But in doing that, you've created, that a good thing? because you've created a stakeholder society, you've created a very large middle class. Everybody is not a renter. Everybody is an owner. 85% of people own, uh, own their apartments, and that gives them a stakeholding in the society and makes them feel good about it in ways. And at the same time, the private market likes it because they provide, they build the housing, they provide the housing, and the government is in effect subsidizing the purchase of housing. So is that a better mechanism than the one we use of basically making, uh, giving you a tax break on your mortgage payments, which was done for the same reason some while ago, and then turned out to have problems? Well, yes, I mean, with the problem, then the problems come from, the, from a mortgage and banking crisis that we have to separate from it. I mean, I, I, think, I, I think the tax break was a good idea. I, mm -hmm. you know, it helped create the American middle class. Mm -hmm. there's, there's no doubt about it. The problem was it was not very useful in cities. It was very useful in suburbs. It, it was born of the oh. suburbs and it allowed houses, but in cities where you didn't buy apartments, and the co-op movement was a middle class and upper class movement, you left the poor out. So the subsidi you subsidized the poor by buying by building uh, project housing of a kind that we know was destructive to their lives, their morale, and to the neighborhood. And what the Singaporeans have done is subsidize the purchase of those. Some of that was done, by the way, in the Bronx uh, when they rebuilt low-rise housing to replace the burned-down uh, buildings there, and people were helped in buying apartments. But the point about Singapore is they've done it systematically across the board. I mean, it's 80 to 85 percent of the population live in homes, apartments. It's all apartments, actually. They don't really have houses. It's all, it goes like this because there's no right. room. Uh, but they own it. And they own it, by the way. What it means is that when you first uh, marry, you have a two-room apartment. When you have kids, you can trade it in buy yourself a four- or five-room apartment. When you get old, you stay in the same building but go back to a one-room studio. Uh -huh. But you're in the same building with your friends and your family. You can trade it in. You have the money to buy it. Nobody has to do it. It becomes also a retirement pension system because the value of your home has accrued in ways that allow you to basically lick the problems of gender, uh, gendered poverty of the old and of uh, the working class. So it's that the housing solution seems to be among the many things the Singaporeans have done. One of the most creative mm -hmm. and interesting. As I say, it's also been approved by... Uh, the private sector, because the private sector provides and builds the housing that is then subsidized, so that they, it, the money goes around. New York question. Um, do you talk to Mayor Bloomberg? No. You, he, he doesn't talk to people like me. Interesting. He, he will, I think. You probably. quote him approvingly. He, he, he will. Sure when, he, when he reads the nice things like I say book, about right, him, right. he might. Um, but, you uh, do talk to Occupy Wall Street, as I recall. I do. And what was... Was that an urban event, and what was that about from the standpoint of the perspective of this book? Well, that, and that's, that's a great question, Stuart, and it, it is true. Imagine a revolution in a cornfield. I mean, revolutions take place on public squares and public thoroughfares. They mm -hmm. take place where populations come together. They, come, they take place in concentration. Radicalism, egalitarianism, the civil rights movement all happens uh, in in towns, and they succeeded, by the way, in towns, 
in rural counties, civil rights workers were picked off one by one and murdered, but in the towns together in solidarity, they achieved uh, their successes. So, so was Occupy so Wall Street a good thing for New York? And it's, it was a terrific thing for New York. It was a terrific thing for London, and it is a city phenomenon. I think it's a good thing for all cities, and unfortunately in cities like Oakland, where they didn't figure that out, you know, they, made, they, 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 they both made a mess of it, and they actually gave uh, publicity to what they would think are probably the worst elements of Occupy, the Occupy movement, the more radical and anarchic elements. But in fact, it's a communitarian movement. It's been a very healthy movement. And it's typical that cities are able to, I mean, that is the essence of the city, that in, that in the city and the boulevards, you can, you can demonstrate, you can assemble. I mean, the, the right to assemble was, the, the right to, uh, to free assembly was never uh, necessary in a, in a rural society because there was nowhere to assemble. It wasn't so you had town centers and growing cities that assembly was an issue. So thinking of Oakland, thinking of the former mayor of Oakland, who's now the governor of the state, you've probably, since you're admiring mayors, been paying attention to ones who go on to serve in other offices, often larger offices. Well, to, um, do to, you think, uh, the, I mean, and, and Brown's a great case. I happened to work for him the first time around yeah. and I'm acquainted with him this time around. Um, yes, he's that much older and the world is that much older, but there's a pre-mayor of Oakland, Governor Brown, and a post-mayor of Oakland, Governor Brown, and there must be other examples like that. Do these characters learn things as governors that they carry on to other positions? Well, here's the most interesting thing about mayors, and this is simply, and you, you're going to probably say, oh, is that really so? Very few mayors among the thousands and thousands of mayors go on to other office. Mm -hmm. The mayoralty is a terminal office for a lot of people for very good reasons. No New York City mayor has ever been president of the United States. I mean, it just doesn't ha you don't go, in fact, you, very few have gone on to any high, we know Giuliani tried, mm -hmm. and there's a reason for that. Mayors, I, I mean, the, the chapter I'm working on right now is, is all about mayors. Mayors are remarkably non-ideological. Most of them are independents, even if they don't call themselves that. You know, Bloomberg, mm -hmm. we know, is that. And you can, ideology has very little to do with running, running a city. So very few mayors go on, and when they do, they haven't been very, very successful. Mayor Lushkov in Moscow was there for 30 years, from Brezhnev to Putin. He helped found the, unite, the, the uh, party that Putin founded, but immediately backed out and said, you know, these national legislators don't do anything. They don't know how to govern. They don't know what they're doing. And he's a critic of the Duma, and he's a critic of Putin, and Putin finally got him out of office uh, after hmm. 30 years. But an awful lot of people are talking about Boris Johnson now taking over for David Cameron. And Boris Johnson keeps saying, you know the kind of character he is. He says, I'm not going anywhere. I love, you know, governing London. I love being the mayor of London. That's where I want to end my days, and that has been Ed Koch. I mean, the story of mayors has not been the story of stepping stones. There are countries like France and England where mayors are assignments that people in a party hierarchy get on their way up the ladder. Mm -hmm. But Francois Hollande, who was just elected uh, the president of France, spent his first seven years as a mayor of a small town in southern France that he wasn't from, but he fell in love with the town. Hmm. He spent seven years there, and when he uh, took the oath of office for the presidency, he went back to that town and took the oath there. So my phrase is, mayors are homeboys. They come from their local towns, and they like to stay there, and they rarely go on to other office. There are you know, mm -hmm. some, 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 Hickenlooper, 
uh, in Denver, was a terrific mayor of Denver, and he's gone on to be the governor. But often when they govern, they're non-ideological. Hickenlooper's been a very pragmatic, non-ideological governor as well. So what they bring with them when they go on is a very non-ideological and pragmatic temperament, which is often ill-suited to the politics of higher office, when ideology and party politics becomes much more important. But they would be suited to the kind of uh, global parliament of cities that you would like to see happen, presumably. They would what? They would be suited for working in a global parliament. Well, they would because there they would go and talk. You know, how do you pick up your garbage? Do you have dedicated uh, bus lanes? You know, that are like subways above the ground. What are you doing about bike share? Uh, how? I mean, the, the conversations are very. When mayors talk together, and I've been there. It's, it's a very practical kind of conversation. When presidents and prime ministers talk, they talk about war and peace. They talk about trade treaties. They talk about uh, ideology, and they talk about national interest. It's it's a very different political conversation, and one for which uh, mayors it's not so much that they're not suited, but they don't have much taste for it. Here's kind of a practical question from Dov uh, Yaganuma. Uh, fiscal distress rolls downhill. The federal government pushes the pain down to the states. The states push it down to the municipalities. And serious economic crisis can cities hope to make globalization progress despite greatly increased economic hindrances coming from the yeah, state? I mean, that's a great question. It's exactly right. And it's another instance of interdependence. I mean, the economic interdependence means that cities cannot escape the pain uh, of national and global economic crisis, which is why they demand and need a say in dealing with those things. But there's no question that many cities are suffering as a result of national and global banking crises for which they're not responsible and over which they have little authority and can't do very much about. But the other side of that is is what's kind of remarkable is how many cities have managed nonetheless to do well. And there I think the proximity of citizens to public officials, the engagement of citizens in their neighborhoods and in the cities makes for a somewhat different uh, relationship. There's an interesting statistic. The confidence level of the American uh, public in Congress is 19% right now, the lowest it's been in a very, very long time. In the presidency as an office, not in a particular president, it's about 44%. Americans have 65% plus confidence in their mayors. In other words, of all politicians, their mayors they see as an extension of them, and that kind of confidence makes it easier to endure the kind of critical economic crises cities are forced to undergo as a consequence of the banking crisis and also allows a sense of solidarity between mayors and their cities that you don't often find between governors and their state constituents or presidents and their national people. Question from uh, Josh Weisberg. Uh, This relates to a presentation we had several years ago by Paul Romer who was just then uh, introducing this idea of charter cities. Is that something you've been tracking on? No. Haven't I mean I'm gonna I've, I've got a research person on it but I haven't been uh, looking at it yet. Does he have a suggestion for us about what? what, what, uh, what yeah, I won't go through his do? story, but you know I suggest just call Paul. He's really good. Yeah, I'll, I'll talk to him. Then. Um, I would do it directly, actually, because I will. You would find a lot. Um, Carter asks, what happens when the metabolism of cities out? pieces the hinterland's ability to feed it resources. Is that going to happen? And has it happened? Is it happening now? How does one deal with that? Again, it's a very important question, and it speaks to interdependence. We know 
the, the local agriculture movement is one effort by cities and the regions around them to find forms of interdependence that serve both of them. There are those who say it's inefficient, that it's more costly in the long term economically, and that it's a kind of middle class phenomenon. Many cities find that they have fresh vegetable markets in the middle class zones, but not in the ghettos, not in the inner city, and so on. Although those are remediable features, that that, that, that is changing. But the relationship between the city and the countryside uh, is sustainable. The problem is it's, pro it's probably most easily sustainable by agribusiness. I mean, agribusiness mm -hmm. is there for 2% of the population to create food for the other 98% of the population and still export 20 to 30% of the American bounty. So there's not a problem of productivity. The, the problem is in the economic forms that do that productivity and whether those mass forms are compatible with democracy and the life of the city. But I don't, the question of feeding the city, I would say, is not a problem. The problem of distributing food so that all cities are fed equally and all people within the city have access to those foods is the fundamental question of injustice and inequality, which has not been solved. So here's a political demographic question. Um, cities seem like they're more liberal politically than the countryside. And you look at blue states and red states and blue counties and red counties and all the rest of it, and, and kind of across the world. Um, OK, that's already interesting. I'd love to hear why you think that's the case. If it is the case that we are moving from the city, people of the world being city dwellers being a minority to now majority to soon being a supermajority, uh, does that mean a liberalization of global politics is basically going on here? You have just depicted the Tea Party's nightmare because because they know and your fond dream. They, I and well, yeah, but they read they read demographics and they read urbanization. And they would agree with, they would say, exactly right, Stuart. We are urbanizing, we are cosmopolitanizing, mm -hmm. we are multiculturalizing our populations in ways that are going to create an ever more somewhat progressive population. That's not to say that, I, I, that the Catholic uh, Im Latino immigrants don't in many ways have cultural norms that are quite conservative and so on. So it's, mm -hmm. not, you know, it's, not, it's not black and white, but there's no question that it, urbanization and cosmopolitanization, those very words say it, do talk about the urbane and the cosmopolitan and the progressive and the open and the multicultural. Cities are based on openness to multiculture. No big city mayor has the problem with immigration that small rural counties do any more than any big business has this problem with immigration. That's why, in fact, immigration illegal happens because there are so many jobs that nobody else will do and the business mm -hmm. wants to hire people to do. So the trends do without question trend liberally in a certain limited kind of sense and that will continue and right now the only difference is uh, the demographics don't vote their numbers so that the new demographics, single mothers with children, working mothers with children, immigrants, uh, Latinos, uh, young people generally vote far less than old, white, suburban, rural folks vote. So right now we are still outvoted in this country by the old demographic, even though the new demographic has more or less, in terms of the majority of the nation, it's where the country is going. So, if, and, and we, it's also built into our political system. The Senate allows 20 states, roughly, 
and the population of 20 states to dominate the American Congress. So mm -hmm. you have 10% or 20% of the population systematically blocking what 80% of the population wants to do. And that's going to become a more serious problem. The Constitution was written in times when we were a rural republic. And most cities had 100,000, 200,000 people. And Jefferson uh, distrusted cities and thought country yeomen were the he, salt of the earth. He and did stuff. indeed, and to some extent that is true. And you know, we talk about urban corruption, and I have a long chapter on the dispute between country and city, the moral dispute uh -huh. between country and city, and the way in which just listen to country music if you want to hear in America a liturgy of what's wrong with cities and, and city folks, you know, and uh, and that's it's very strong and it's very powerful, and there's a certain you know truth uh, to it. We talk about the deracination of cities and the uprooting of people and the loneliness of cities and so on. You listen to urban music too or listen to urban blues and you hear the other side of that. So th there's a very real, uh, there's a real value uh, disconnect between country life rooted in the land and city life uh, rooted in urban deracination, which is also freedom. And Jay McInerney, you know, you read Jay McInerney and there's mm -hmm. a story of total freedom, license, despair, hopelessness, murder, you know, you name mm -hmm. it, all of which go hand in hand. But then contrast that with the book a couple of years ago, 20 years ago by Michael Lacey called Wisconsin Death Trip. Oh yeah, great. He went back and looked at the police blotters for small villages in Wisconsin in the 19th century. And People was, ate kitchen matches to, to commit suicide. It was like Governor Walker was everywhere back in those days. And, uh, he, and uh, it was a, it was, it was a it was a terrible story, you know, and then mm. there's the, the idiocy, Marx talks about the idiocy of rural life and, you know, the impossibility and the barbarism of, of, of rural, so, and the people in the country talk about, you know, the incivility and deracination of people in the city, so that is a debate that, that goes on, but the fact is, demographically, the debate is going to be won decisively by cosmopolitanism and the city, and that's a good thing if you value difference, if you value multiculturalism, if you value tolerance, if you value variety, if you value art, and so on, and the things that people uh, who live in cities value. Uh, Liam, there's a pace question here too then. Um, things happen a hot New York minute in New York, and in the city we're you know, multitasking every which way, doing everything but voting, it sounds like, and uh, doing it faster and faster, and uh, the whole deal of, of rural life is that it, it operates at a seasonal pace, and the long now, from our standpoint, it would seem like resides in the countryside, and the short now, which is where Brian Eno first got the notion of that there ought to be a long now, because he saw the short now being pathological in Manhattan, uh, is, isn't cities just gonna drive our, our pathetically short attention span into uh, you know, micro nano form so that we can't actually pay attention to anything for very long? It sure is, and uh, you know, you're the guy with the Long Now Foundation. I mean, that-, that Which we started in the city. I know, that's by the, you, you got in the wrong, that's my point. You need to have to go out to, you know, the, the, the valley, I guess, with it, to, to take it somewhere else, because I mean, that is, I mean, the, the short, the short term of city life, the fastest and the pace of the city, speed is what the city, is all about. There's no question about it. Urban life is much faster than country. We used life. to and think that was bad. Is it actually good? No, well, it's good, but like everything, I'm a dialectician. It's good and it's bad. You know, so, so I mean, the short now is okay. Uh -huh. There are a lot of I things agree. in the short now, you know, I mean, 
you know, I mean, sex on the long now, you know, is, I know that's a short now as far as I can see, and, and, and a good thing too, uh, <laughs> but not that short, folks. I mean, <laughs> and for my follow-up question, let's move on to the next question here. <laughs> Kevin Hart has a question: How should uh, Athens cooperate with Frankfurt to preserve the benefits of the euro? Well, the problem is Frankfurt and Athens are not working together. The European bank in Frankfurt is the face of Europe in mm -hmm. Athens. Okay. If the citizens of Frankfurt were involved, I suspect you would get an agreement that would not focus on radical austerity and the dismantling of the Greek welfare state. You would certainly get a curtailing of expenses. You'd have to mm -hmm. have cutbacks. Obviously, it's, you know, it's overheated. It can't do it. But, but the reality is the interface in Europe means the European bank. Europe means the bureaucrats. It does not mean Europe cities, and it does not mean democracy. The real problem, the crisis in Europe, comes because Europe is a technocratic, economic, and fiscal entity. It is not a community or democratic entity. And if cities were allowed to define Europe, it would be a very, very different Europe. Did they once? Yeah. You mentioned Hanseatic League and things like yeah, that. Yeah, no, they did, and they, in certain, we were talking before. Yeah, you know, and uh, Italy was defined by the cities for a long time. All they did was kill each other a lot and have some very good art. No, actually, they didn't kill each other. They hired the Swiss <laughs> to come in. And the Swiss were very good because the Swiss, in the beginning, when the Swiss first came to Italy, they, were, they came in as proxy warriors, as mercenaries. And because they were all from the same families, they wouldn't kill each other, even though they're on different sides. So Separate they, peace it, out there in the... It was chess. No, they said, you know, you win this one, you know, you're well deployed, you know, you mm -hmm. can have this one. They, but I'm, I'm serious, actually. They really didn't kill each other. And the, and the new Charles in France in the 15th century, when national armies were raised from peasants and so on, that's when they started killing each other. Very few people died in the wars of the 13th and 14th century. It's the best argument for mercenaries I've ever heard. It, was, it is. It's, <laughs> in fact, there's a whole solution path I can see there. But they have to be Swiss They have to be mercenaries from the same place. You have to hire them from one source. So they're all related to one right, another. Right, 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 right. Uh, is this how the Swiss wound up guarding the Pope forever? It is exactly how they... That's, that's the, you know residue of the 15th century mercenaries. History is full of good ideas. Uh, uh, Rick says, you spoke powerfully about the informal bottom-up connection the cities are making with each other in the face of formal top-down nation-state governance. So why make the city relations formal? Yeah, good and uh, great. And, and by the way, I've, you know, a book, <laughs> book I wrote a number of years ago was called Strong Democracy, and it was about bottom-up participation. And one of the things that I'm finding is that the way cities operate is much more a model of strong democracy. When mm -hmm. I say formal, you know, I don't mean make them top-down. I just mean formalize. That is to say, it's great that the uh, counselor from Chicago happened to be in Seville, Spain, and saw some bike share ideas that he could use in Chicago. But wouldn't it be great if a thousand mayors came together and could share ideas systematically about bike shares so you don't have to wait for someone to take a trip to Seville to get this great idea. There are a lot of very interesting urban ideas around another. For about 10% the cost of a subway, you can have a dedicated, separated bus lane. Mm -hmm. No other traffic's there. It stops, the doors like open this way and so on with its own mm -hmm. curbside and so mm -hmm. on. 
it's a brilliant suggestion. It's been now used in a number of cities in Africa and in Latin America. I hope it's going to be used here. But again, that's an idea that if you formalize the relationships of transportation secretaries from cities so that they come together regularly, that exchange. So th I'm using formalize in that sense, not create a top-down. Regularize rather than... Normalize, regularize, systematize maybe. Mm -hmm. to do it so that you, you, you in effect, I mean my notion of a parliament of cities is, is a place where there's an awful lot of exchange of ideas going on and a lot of it can be web-based by the way, you know, you know, a lot of that can happen and a lot of it is happening. Web type in bike share, you know, on Google and you'll find, you know, an extraordinary amount of information about what's going on and, and there are about 300 bike share programs including, you know, we have Code for America people here who are charging ahead on this sort of thing. I trust you have what they're doing in your process. I have been process. following them indeed. Outstanding. That's great work. Thank you for great doing work. that. Thank you for coming. This was great, man. Thank you very much. Thank you all. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining LongNow as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.